All right, everybody, as people start filing in, I think we're ready to go ahead and get started. So just like our last one, this is a new kind of space that we're trying out, working with some experts and companies today in collective shareholder action and activist investing to kind of delve into a larger topic here. So today we'll be talking about collective action in the markets, multiplayer fintech, and activist investing as a whole. As always, we're excited to have all these great speakers who will provide their thoughts and feedback on the topic. And so with that, I want to welcome everyone starting their morning with us today and afternoon for those of you more eastbound. As those who frequent our spaces know, and this goes out to the panelists for the most part, I like to keep these panels very open for discussion. So kind of as we go along, all panelists feel free to discuss openly and add your thoughts on any given topic. So somebody answers a question, you got something to add, please feel free to do so. The only request that I have is that microphones remain muted when someone else is talking so we can avoid any feedback or talking over each other. And of course, if you have anything you have coming out or anything you want to promote while we discuss, feel free to plug that, especially as we kind of go through the introductions here. So real quick, a little disclaimer at the top per usual. This space, this panel is not financial advice. The stock market is risky and any trade or investment is expected to have some or total loss. As always, please do your own research before taking any investments or trades and don't use the information on this panel for financial decisions or investing. So with that, I want to go ahead and jump into some introductions for our lovely speakers today. First, we've got our man Felix Tabery. He's the co-founder and CEO of today's sponsor, Troop Platform, a platform dedicated to democratizing and mobilizing the collective power of retail investors through shareholder votes and campaigns. Having worked in sales at Bloomberg covering hedge fund clients, seeing what possibilities existed at the institutional level, and inspired by collective actions such as those taken by GameStop shareholders and the case of Activist Fund Engine Number no. 1 versus ExxonMobil, Felix co-founded Troop in 2021 to provide a platform for retail investors to connect with an influential community of verified shareholders and vote on campaigns and polls to change companies they invest in for the better. Felix, honored to have you. How are you doing today? Great. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Pleasure to have you. I'm really excited to dive into this one. I think it's a, a pretty um, underserved topic, if you will, and something that I think a lot of people are going to learn from. So thanks. Next, we have Christina Souter, law professor at SMU Dedman School of Law. Christina is a professor of law there at SMU Dedman with a history of corporate governance, mergers and acquisition law, as well as transactional law. Professor Souter has authored publications in numerous leading journals, such as the Boston University Law Review and the Journal of Corporation Law. Her most recent research explores the relationship between markets and corporations with a focus on how new generations of investors have the power to transform the governance of corporations. Thank you for joining us, Christina. How are you today? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm looking forward to the discussion. I'm looking forward to your feedback as well, Christina. Thanks for coming. And next, we've got Michael R. Levin, founder of The Activist Investor. He's an experienced board director and activist investor himself. He's an expert in all things activist investing with a deep knowledge of practical business strategy, financial structuring, and topics concerning the SEC. 
Michael's been involved in numerous turnaround cases in several different industries. From collective action to universal proxy, Michael's expertise is a must-have for these types of topics and discussions, and we're really happy to have him here to share his knowledge. Welcome, Michael. Thanks a bunch. Doing well here. Uh, let me just mention when you say, which is great, founding Activist Investor, that refers to a website called theactivistinvestor.com. One word, no punctuation, where you can find all sorts of resources for listeners and participants here that want to start learning more about activist investing. It's uh, directed toward uh, a range of expertise, so people who have no experience with it should find some help there for, uh, uh, for learning about this subject. All right? Absolutely. Check that out, folks. Thank you, Michael, for coming. Yep, you got it. All right, folks, so I'm going to go ahead and dive right in. And Felix, I would love to start with you here. When people hear the term activist investing, the first thing that tends to come to mind is investing in companies that align with your specific interests. But as I understand it, it's a lot more than that. So as founder of the community investment app Troop that strives to bring investors together to make positive change, it's safe to say, Felix, that you're very passionate about shareholder voices and activist investing. So real quick here at the top, Felix, could you give us a quick rundown of what activist investing means to you and what you folks at Troop are doing to make these initiatives more accessible to retail investors? 100% and happy to start there. I would say um, for um, all of us at Troop, activist investing is first and foremost a collective exercise. Um, it's an exercise in uh, collectivism and coordination and working together. I think a big part of where we come from is this idea that, you know, corporations, especially in the U.S., have a pretty outsized impact on our lives. Um, but, you know, we don't necessarily uh, elect the executives and the boards of these companies. And most publicly traded companies, the way that they're governed um, is quite similar in that they have a board of directors that you know oversees a lot of the big picture decisions that the company then executes on the operational level. And most people who are shareholders of companies, whether they realize it or not, typically have the right um, at least once a year to kind of cast their vote for the board of directors uh, the members of the board of directors, um, and sometimes they can cast their vote on a number of other issues. So activist investing, for us at least, is really just the exercise of taking a bit of an active seat um, in your position as a shareholder in a company and an investor in a company, um, and just exercising your right to to vote, taking an active role um, in the administration of the companies that you are technically a partial owner of. Um, that's mostly what it means. At the same time, because corporations have an outsized impact on our lives, um, in our view, corporate governance or company governance is our collective responsibility. Companies have the ability to be pretty influential in the way that we lead our lives. And so activist investing is just a way for uh, it's a mechanism through which uh, most people who are invested in the market, whether they realize it or not, can voice their opinions on certain governance matters um, that collectively end up having a pretty big impact uh, again in our life. And so I think um, the two big things that we're working on right now, the two big initiatives that we're uh, focused on are one, 
what can we do to get people to realize that they have this right and that they can and should exercise it? And then secondly, how can we make it more enticing and exciting? And our number one response to that is through kind of a group effort um, and a collective effort. And we think that the mechanism of shareholder activism or activist investing lends itself particularly well to both of those things. One, educating you to the concept of governance. And two, inviting you to participate in the governance of companies, doing it together because together we can go further. I think I really like that phrase. Together we can go further. Now, Christina, kind of tailing on that, especially in line with the the working together concept, you've said before that most retail investors who fail to vote their shares do so because they're unaware of their right to vote and the impact that their votes can have. So Christina, what role do policymakers play in this and what needs to be done to raise the average investor's awareness of their power to induce change in the companies they hold? So just to follow up a bit on what Felix just alluded to, I think if you think about when you first became aware of the vast power of corporations, when was that? And when did you first become aware of your actually your power to vote within corporations and the proxy voting process and how that works? Um, I think for most people, the answer to that is they did not become aware of these things in grade school or in high school or um, and some aren't even really aware of it now. Um, and so this is where policymakers, I think, can really play a role. And I think that this needs to change. So my co-author, uh, Sergio Alberto Gramito Ricci, uh, who is currently at UMKC School of Law and I, we wrote a paper recently called The Educated Retail Investor. And in that paper, we argued that corporate governance education um, not just financial literacy education, but corporate governance education should be mandatory at least at the high school level. And I think policymakers have a role in making that happen. Um, that's where they really can, can exercise their power. And learning about corporations should not, it should just be a natural thing that occurs in every American's life as they grow up. Also, um, the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, plays a significant role here and can play a significant role here. So about 90 years ago, um, Congress made the decision to facilitate individuals' investments um, in the stock markets um, by adopting the Securities Act of 1933 and then the Securities Exchange Act of 1934 and creating the SEC. And the SEC's role is supposed to be to kind of oversee facilitation of information so that investors can um, make decisions on, on their own behalf. Um, I think that the SEC can play a role here in helping to educate uh, investors or potential investors um, on how corporations work and also they play a role and can play a role in making access easier and more accessible um, to everyday investors like you and I. Well, here's the hope that accessibility keeps growing. Now, Michael, I'm going to kick over to you next here. We arguably yeah. can't really touch on activist investing and the voices of shareholders without at least tickling the topic of universal proxy. 
Now, in a recent publication on the CLS Blue Sky blog, Michael, you noted that, quote, shareholders won big with the universal proxy card in 2023. And according to that article, you stated proxy advisors, in particular ISS, saw their recommendations win in almost every proxy contest. Now, Michael, can you quickly give a bird's eye view for the listeners today of what universal proxy is and how it affects shareholder voting and maybe touch on why UPC was so successful for shareholders sure. this year? Um, yeah, I'd be happy to do that. So so universal proxy was a uh, presumably technical change in how the SEC regulates these board elections that we're talking about here where um, listeners, investors, shareholders are entitled to vote at um, corporate, it, it vote for directors, vote for board members. And this seemingly technical change actually reverberated throughout companies um, and led to a lot of companies actually paying a little more closer attention to their uh, what their shareholders want. Uh, in terms of directors and director representation. Uh, the technical change really just had to do with how names were displayed on basically the ballot that you use. Um, and, and without going into too much of the technical detail, we can do that a little later. Um, it, uh, it allowed shareholders to, to express their preferences for how much change they want at a company with a lot more uh, a lot more directly and with a lot more precision. Uh, so shareholders in the past had really had very little uh, they could do when they voted for directors. Um, and this, 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 you know, little regulatory change really strengthened their ability to elect individual directors that they prefer to kind of knock out uh, incumbents who were kind of older or really didn't seem to be representing their interests very well. And so, because after all, that's what, that's what all these elections come down to. Um, when a, when a shareholder, you know, votes, which we're talking about, they have the right to vote and to sort of direct, you know, who represents them at a company. Um, you want, you know, your elected representative, just like in civic elections to, um, to represent your needs, whether it's going to be for uh, some form of sustainability, whether it's a, a better governance, or whether it's just pure money making, um, you, you want to have more of a say here. So universal proxy really was for shareholders. And um, as a consequence, activist investors were excited about this. It allowed us as uh, investors to uh, influence companies more. And companies um, were a little, candidly, a little scared of it. They settled these elections a lot more, a lot more quickly and started, you know, really moving a little bit more toward representing shareholder interest in, uh, in a more direct way. Um, there's a lot more to talk about about universal proxy, but that's kind of a headline that highlights about how it worked. All right, Nick. Beautiful. Thank you, Michael. And we'll definitely yeah, well, touch a little bit more on that later. Yeah, we, yeah it, we'll get to this. Right. Beautiful. Does anybody else on the panel have anything to add or comment on what's been spoken about so far? Yeah, let me let me um, if I may. Yeah, let, 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 let me make a couple of distinctions for for listeners here that I think should should be a little helpful. OK, uh, I, I want to cover two points, kind of the elaborate a little bit about which Christina, Christina talked about the nature of collective action here and, and, and a couple different forms of activism. 
the the reason that this is so interesting to me is a collective action problem. And, you know, I'm a I'm, I'm basically an economist is my background finance guy. I'm not a lawyer or anything like that. Is that at a given public company, the U.S. public company, any shareholder uh, really owns only a really small slice of it. Even the biggest shareholders, which you know, and there's the, there's the so-called big three of BlackRock. Fidelity and State Street, you know, even though everyone loves to talk about how powerful they are, even any one of them owns, you know, under 10% of the outstanding shares of a given company. And usually for some of the biggest companies we care about, much less. And the big three together, you know, rarely own, you know, more than 15 or so percent of a company. So for anything to happen at a at a company through uh, activism through, you know, governance changes, it takes the concerted effort of a large collection, collective action of, of shareholders. So kind of, so, so we're interested in trying to figure out ways to coordinate this. That's what troops trying to do and trying to achieve um, and, and trying to coordinate the interests of a large group of diverse shareholders uh, in, in this, in, in what is sometimes been described as, you know, in academic literature, is a, is a classic collective action problem. You know, how can the actions of a very small number or even a single shareholder start to benefit all shareholders of a company? So I wanted to just mention that's why this is a collective action pro pro project and a uh, problem and a really interesting one at that. So, um, you know, continuing to kind of think through how we can facilitate better cooperation and collaboration among shareholders is, is, is one of the big reasons why we're here. Uh, the other thing I want to mention is, is sort of classify kind of two types of, of activism that have sort of emerged. Um, they both kind of run in parallel, but they kind of interact with each other very frequently. Uh, the, the latter one, the more recent one that's gotten a lot of attention, sometimes falls under the phrasing of ESG, environmental, social governance, um, and so forth. That kind of activism arises when one or more shareholders, you know, kind of want a company to uh, behave in a certain way, want them to follow policy in a certain way, um, you know, treat uh, union workers better. There's all sorts of, there's a whole range of issues where shareholders take an interest in, in what a company does. And there's all sorts of tools and techniques and so forth for shareholders to do that, again, following some of the collective action principles I alluded to earlier. The second type of activism, uh, and this is something that I'm, I've been a little more directly involved in, has to do with uh, what you could call financial activism, where we, you, know, you could have a company in your portfolio that just isn't cutting it, that uh, you know, management has lost their uh, direction, lost their, you know, take their eye off the ball, use whatever metaphor you want. But the company is just not doing as well as they can, really seriously underperforming. And shareholders want to deal with that, want to try to respond, want to try to fix it. Um, the two types of activism have many things in common. They uh, sometimes have been at odds, but more lately, they've started to co converge a little more. But I wanted to kind of you know, bring out that distinction just so that we, you know, have a better idea of what we might be talking about when we talk about one or the other. So that, that's really what I wanted to mention here, why this is a collective action problem and these two types of activist investing, which would be very interesting to, uh, to the listeners here. Hope, I hope that helps, Nick.
Thank you, Michael. Really good distinctions to make, I think. Christina and Felix, do either of you have anything to add to what Michael said? I'll just add here. Um, I mean, we are all under the assumption that everybody understands that typically their shares of stock come with a, a, at least one right to vote. Um, and so that those votes, um, as Michael is alluding to, combined together can be very powerful. Um, and we are also assuming here that, and, and we're going to be talking about this as we go move forward, um, is that people understand the, the proxy and voting process um, and that voting here is occurring really before a shareholder meeting occurs um, via proxy. Um, and so it's very important um, for people when they receive these emails um, to vote their shares that they actually do vote those shares. That's, um, that's what we're really talking about here. Um, and that's also the talk when I'm talking about education um, and enhancing investor education, it's to understand how that process works because um, what we see and what we know is that people don't understand that process. They don't know the terminology or understand the terminology. And there's really no reason for them to, to know that it's not intuitive. They don't know what a record date is. Um, and they don't know what that, that process and how that process works. Um, so that's, that's very important um, as we move forward and, and, and talk about this. Really good point to make, I think. Felix, something to add there as well? Yeah, so I, I definitely agree that there's a um, there's there's information asymmetry and a bit of a knowledge gap um, at play here. And I think perhaps some of the more cynical voices, uh, you know, in, in the realm of, of, of voting advisory or governance advisory or whatnot um, are 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 eager and quick to suggest that, you know, there's voter apathy or retail shareholder apathy that, that, that actually retail does know they just, they just don't care. And I don't know that I necessarily agree with that. Um, at the same time though, if you look at voter turnout uh, for federal elections in the U S uh, it's among the lowest turnout rates of any kind of developed democracy in the Western world. Um, so there might be uh, more of like a, a cultural thing at play. Either way, I think uh, the, the solution remains roughly the same. It's a grassroots voter registration style issue that really can only be solved uh, through a branding and marketing uh, uh, and education exercise. And it's a large part of why we're focused on kind of providing as much simple context as possible uh, on any ongoing shareholder activist campaign on companies where there's a decently significant retail shareholder population. It's mostly so that we can uh, hope that people participate, right? If we put things into simple terms, uh, we provide always as, as uh, at least two perspectives on the issues at hand, right? The issue pre presented from the perspective of the person filing the shareholder demand or the activist investing campaign, and then the response from the board of the company that's being targeted. We, we feel that that's, that's only fair. Um, but a big part of why we're doing what we're doing is companies in the voting statements are allowed to expand a lot more uh, on why they think this or that shareholder proposal uh, should be voted against. 
but the people presenting those very same proposals have a much more limited amount of real estate on the page to kind of develop their argument. There's a set number of words uh, that you can't go over. Otherwise, you're allowed to have uh, that proposal tossed out. And so Troop exists uh, in an attempt to kind of level the playing field a little bit uh, to kind of correct and solve some of the information asymmetry. Um, and if we can do it while building community at the same time to make the process more fun and engaging, uh, then you can bet that's what we're going to do. And that's, uh, that's largely where, uh, where we've arrived today. And you all know that we at Unusual Whales really love the aspects of a strong community and leveling the playing field, I'm sure. So Felix, you actually gave me a really good segue on that topic of, of apathy in the markets. And so I'm going to spin over to Christina here again. In August, Christina, you and Sergio Alberto Gramito Ricci published a piece titled Wireless Investors and Apathy Obsolescence. And in that piece, you discuss rational apathy from the perspective of an investor and how that apathy may be in the process of dying out. So Christina, without giving too much of your publication away, which everyone here should be checking out as soon as possible, can you outline for the listeners today what that rational apathy is and what recent factors or changes are breaking that down? Sure, Nick. So rational apathy is a thought that one's vote doesn't matter, um, that an individual's vote won't have any impact on an election or on the determination of a certain matter. And this occurs even when an individual may know that other people may have different views on the matter and, and may vote differently from them. The individual um, believes that their vote uh, won't really vary the, the outcome. And so it's very much individualistic thinking. It's this idea that it's, it's too costly to participate, it's too costly to get up to speed, and, and even if one does incur those costs, um, that doing so will be useless. So in wireless investors, and, and by the way, I should, I should define the term wireless investors. Uh, wireless investors is a term that Sergio and I created um, to refer to individuals who are investing using commission-free trading apps um, and who are obtaining their information, their investing information primarily online. And so what we see, and I know what we're going to be talking about, um, is that the majority of newer investors coming into the markets were millennial and Gen Z investors. And these individuals are using commission-free trading apps and are obtaining the majority, if not all of their investing information online. So millennial and Gen Z investors um, typically would be wireless investors, uh, as though are, are other individuals as well. And so in the wireless investors article that we wrote, we argue that apathy is really a result of a lack of information. It's an inability to be able to communicate and also an inability to coordinate, um, an inability to learn what's what, that one's vote actually does matter, um, particularly if other people are voting in a similar fashion or hold similar views. And so what we argue is that technology and, and social media really removes these barriers to communication and removes the barriers to information gathering. 
obtaining information now is much less costly. It's mu much less time consuming than it has been in the past, um, particularly if you know where to look for that information. And so that people can communicate much more easily. They can discuss issues that are on shareholder meeting agendas. They can exchange information about that. They can exchange information about how they're going to be voting. Um, and so it's no longer rational to stay apathetic. So in the paper, we talk about how people, particularly um, millennials and Gen Zers, naturally come together online. They're building communities online and they're doing this in virtually all aspects of their lives. When we're talking about in the paper, we're talking about how millennials and Gen Zers are coming together online and they're building these social ties, they're building trust. Um, and in turn, this builds um, social networks. But basically, I was referring to how when social trust exists, that builds um, greater civ civic engagement. Um, and what we see is that means higher participation rates in community and, and political organizations. And so we argue in the paper is that this can transfer to investing and to participation in, in corporate governance. And so that as more people become engaged, it'll shift the social norms with respect to participation so that there'll be a social norm actually in favor of corporate governance participation. Um, and then if you fall outside of this norm, if you don't participate in social governance, partic uh, uh, social governance um, it'll be frowned upon. And we argue that ultimately that's, this can create a movement, which we call the wireless investors movement. And I'll give a plug for another piece that we wrote, which is actually called the wireless investors um, movement that was published in uh, the Chicago Business Law Review online edition. It's a very short, easy to read piece. And so that's essentially what um, wireless investors and apathy obsolescence um, breaks down to. And, and hopefully you were able to, to hear most of what I was saying. Yeah, I think we got the important parts at least, Christina. Thank you. And Excellent. it does it does kind of spin me into a very similar topic here with the the wireless investors, that of a generational shift in investing. And I'm going to kick this one to Felix first, but since you also have a piece very specific to this, Christina, feel free to speak up and obviously Michael feel free to chime in after Felix as well. But uh the assumptive norm for each generation of people and in this case investors is that they will change their values as they age. Uh, but Christina and Sergio Alberto have said time and again that millennials and Gen Z kind of defy that norm. And so, Felix, we'll start with you here. Can you give us some insight as to how and why you think that is? Why is it that younger generations are pushing that status quo? And could you possibly give some examples of this in the world of investing? Sure. Um... I think that there are perhaps two, two reasons, uh, two or two leading reasons. Um, the first is, I think at this point, it's uh, no longer a very credible stance um, to argue against the relatively finite nature of the resources that we have on Earth. And so I think we're just facing a little bit of... Uh, <laughs> We're we're kind of at odds with the main narrative that leads a, 
our general understanding of our economic system, which is based on the assumption of eternal and constant growth. But that's kind of inconsistent with the nature of finite resources. And so I think um, even without necessarily going down, you know, a super environmental route, uh, just kind of asking questions about, well, what happens when we exhaust, you know, the overwhelming majority of uh, the current main source that we're using for energy? What happens when we push the limits of our environment to a point where um, we're kind of threatening biodiversity? Uh, not even from a conservation standpoint, but just from like a human existence standpoint. So I think this is probably one of the first things, um, you know, climate related dread or, um, or fear uh, is extremely prevalent among younger generations. And there's this, I can't remember where I was seeing this the other day, someone was mentioning that for the youngest generation, like every, every job is going to be a climate job. I don't know if I'd necessarily see it going that far, but I think that that helps explain um, younger generations as they age, relative steadfastness when it comes to holding on to kind of resource constraint values first. Um, and I think the other is mostly just uh, we're seeing an increase in democratic participation, participation in governance systems at a slightly higher clip in the U.S. at least today uh, than we have since probably the early 60s. In fact, the last general election that saw the 18 to 24 year old range of people with as much participation as this last election uh, was when JFK was elected. And it's been a minute since that happened. Um, so I think, you know, on one hand, you've got resource constraint and the relatively finite nature of our resources that are getting people to start questioning the basis of the model upon which we're building most companies and most ideas. Um, and then at the same time, uh, an interesting other secular shift is just a movement towards participating more in governance structures. Um, perhaps we're seeing that apathy being combated um, and a increased participation, especially from younger generations uh, in governance and voting structures. And so to me, it's not super surprising that this trickles over um, to the stock market. Beautiful, Felix. Does anyone have anything to add to what Felix said there? Yeah, let me um, let me elaborate on his point a little bit about why what's kind of happened in the stock market, if you will, or among companies to uh, kind of a a allow or encourage or you know where where the environment has shifted that you know listeners such as you know investors such as listeners on this the spaces are now a lot more uh, involved. And um, I need to hearken back to that distinction I made between financial activism and ESG activism. There is a raging debate among aficionados, but also uh, investors and scholars and so forth goes up as high as Larry Fink, who runs BlackRock, one of those big three, about the purpose of a company, the purpose of a corporation. Is, is the purpose of a corporation to make money or is the purpose of a corporation to um, sort of participate in a, in a constructive way in our society? I, I don't really want to try to resolve that debate right here, but I'm just saying that that's kind of the backdrop in which all this is happening. And at the same time, um, a lot of 
uh, people who are investors or are shareholders, which is, you know, it's grown a huge amount thanks to, um, you know, the, the wireless investing that Christina referred to and so forth. Um, I, I sense that a lot of those shareholders have grown uh, frustrated, disillusioned, whatever, with their ability to participate in civic elections. Uh, a lot of people are getting disenfranchised and so forth. So they're now looking to another place where they can uh, maybe have an influence over what happens in the world. Um, and that would be to try to influence what goes on in the company. Now, again, for reasons we can talk about, voting in corporate matters is not a whole lot easier and sometimes a lot harder than trying to register to vote in civic elections. But, you know, in, in that backdrop about what, what the purpose of a corporation is, uh, people who own stock are starting to see that, okay, if I really can't express my views very directly about, you know, how I elect people, at least I can do that in trying to figure out uh, and influence uh, what companies should be doing and maybe get them to focus um, more on their purpose as a participant in our uh, society, in our community, in our, in our country, and less on the pure money-making aspects of what they do. So, so there seems to be this sentiment that shareholders now um, have started to try to get companies to do what uh, they can because we can't get uh, governmental institutions to do what, what needs to happen. Um, so I, I think that would be a logical extension of some of the trends that we started talking about uh, just, just right here a, a, a moment or two ago. All right? Perfect, Michael. Thank you. So, sure. Christina, before I move into the more nitty-gritty of activist investing with some examples from the past, do you have anything you wanted to add about millennials and Gen Z pushing that norm, um, maybe differences between them and their predecessors in investing? Yeah, I think that one of the reasons why Sergio and I um, time and time again say that millennials and Gen Zers will defy these norms of changing their values you know, as they age um, is, is because of technology. And, you know, technology really creates this opportunity that you know, previous generations did not previously have. Um, and it, it really allows individuals to disintermediate their shares. Um, it facilitates holding shares directly. And again, as we've been talking about, it really facilitates people coming together um, and exchanging information and, and exchanging their values online and building communities online. Um, and also to pick up on, on what Michael said is that you know, there are definite surveys that back up what he says about um, people expecting corporations to take the place of governments where, where the government um, may be failing in their eyes um, they're expecting corporations to fill those roles. And they're also um, expecting corporations um, to, to have values. Um, I think that that's something that we're definitely seeing in, in surveys for, of millennials and Gen Z investors, um, that millennials and Gen Z investors have certain values. And they would like the companies that they invest in um, to also have similar values as them. 
And so I think that that's what some of the, the big things, the big differences that we're seeing. Um, another thing I just wanted to, to jump in on, on what Felix had and said as well, um, in the wireless investors paper, we cite um, to research done by John Delavolpe at um, the Kennedy School of Government and in a book that he wrote called um, Fight How, I think it's called How, How Gen Z is, is Channeling Their Fear and Passion to Save America. And what I think that's interesting in that book is that he's he finds and he says that Gen Zers are going to lead a resurgence of of civic participation, um, and that U.S. citizens are going to become the most active um, voters in the world, and that's going to be led by Gen Z. And so I think that as Gen Z becomes more active um, in in civic participation and political uh, participation, and paired with their expectation that corporations should be filling in um, for governments, that they're just naturally also going to become uh, more active in, in corporations once they realize that the power that they're sitting on, of course, as Michael alluded to, it's not always the easiest um, to participate um, in, in corporate governance and in, in elections. So um, there's that issue, though, as a, as a barrier. And that's all we need for retail investors, right? It's more barriers. Exactly. There's, so, there's enough of them already. <laughs> so I kind of want to touch on some previous examples of successful activists investing, kind of grouping together for that collective action for change. And over the years, there have been a number of successful shareholder activism campaigns. And even recently, there was an As You Sew campaign against Amazon's plastic mailers, wherein 32% of the shareholder vote voted in favor of reducing waste, and that resulted in the utilization of recyclable alternatives. Uh, another really good example, and I know, Felix, you hold this one kind of dear and were somewhat inspired by it for creating Troop, and that's the 2021 shareholder activist campaign on ExxonMobil by a small fund called Engine Number One that unseated three board members. So Felix, let's start with you here, and then I do want to kick it to the panel per usual. What made the case of Exxon so successful, and how important were the collaborative efforts of shareholders in the endeavor to implement change for the better? I, I do really like that example, and it was a particularly inspiring one. I would say uh, the biggest thing that stood out is um, the fact that the main argument was not really uh, an environmental argument. It was an economic one, and I'll, I'll explain what I mean. So when you are a very large long-term investor, such as pretty much every pension fund in the U.S. Um, or a large institutional asset manager, you are investing with one goal, which is to give the people whose money you're managing more money tomorrow than they gave you today, right? And it's based on the assumption that the companies that you invest in are going to grow in value and that at some point in the future when you sell, that that, that, that piece of ownership is going to be worth more in the future than it is today. If you look at ExxonMobil, the overwhelming majority of their revenue comes from uh, everyday Americans filling their cars at the gas pump. Except that at the same time, 
uh, on a 2035-2040 horizon, all U.S. automakers are committing to transitioning to electric vehicles. So if you're ExxonMobil and you don't have a plan to transition to renewable energies by 2035 or 2040, it really doesn't have much to do with the environment. This is just cold, hard business reality. You don't have a plan uh, to continue to generate revenue from uh, your consumer base, which is, again, like automobile drivers. And since we're no longer making gas combustion engines, uh, you need to have some sort of a, a plan to transition. So off the back of Exxon's lack of plan, especially versus Exxon's peers, right? All other large oil and gas companies had a pretty clear transition plan with a phase out uh, from fuel. Again, not for environmental reasons, but really in response uh, to the market demand. Um, the off the back of that argument, the small hedge fund uh, basically built a pretty impressive coalition. Uh, composed mostly of the world's biggest investors, all of whom have some sort of a stake in ExxonMobil, and were able to, uh, to ExxonMobil's great surprise, um, get three people who they nominated to the board out of four. They almost got four through, but they only managed to get three, um, added to Exxon's board with a specific mandate to kind of steward the company uh, in the direction of, of building out a plan to transition to renewable energy. Um, and while that was happening, the you know, Reddit-fueled frenzy over at GameStop was also taking place. And at AMC, there were minor governance implications on both sides. But what was really interesting was that the collective effort online, uh, mostly championed by retail investors, did enable both of those companies to do at least one thing, which was to renegotiate a lot of their loans, enabling them to kind of clear up their balance sheet and objectively became better investments in a fairly short amount of time. Both of those things happened, right? The ExxonMobil campaign um, and then the AMC and GameStop story also happened around the same time. Um, and those two things were pretty clear indicators of what happens when we kind of work together um, and the type of changes that we can effect at a fairly large scale, whether we're talking, you know, retail investors discovering collective community for the first time at GameStop or a hedge fund pairing up with a ton of large institutional investors to push the U.S.'s biggest oil and gas producer to come up with a plan to transition to renewable energies. I mean, talk about the unbelievable impact that's going to have um, uh, on the environment uh, over a medium to long term. And Nick, I have a, a comment for you just to elaborate on what um, Felix was saying about engine number one and ExxonMobil. Can I chime in on that? Would that be yeah, okay? please. Please do. Sure. So, and that's a wonderful example because it also illustrates a couple of truths or a couple of points we've all been making. Uh, the first, and I'm just going to echo what, what Felix said, the collective action aspect of that was really remarkable. Engine number one was a very new little hedge fund. It was started by a uh, tech entrepreneur by the name of Chris James on the West Coast. Uh, he seeded it with his own money, but but they ended up being able to acquire just a tiny sliver of Exxon stock. But through the case that they made, uh, we're not able we're we're able to not only you know get a, a significant number of retail investors. Exxon has a very large retail. Uh, investor base relative to a lot of other companies. Uh, so they were able to round them up, but also were able to persuade 
I think all three of the biggest uh, shareholders in ExxonMobil and so forth, and really um, was able to, um, you know, get that that collective action uh, going in in that case. Uh, and it was uh, a an ExxonMobil is a famously famously arrogant company in terms of its relations with its shareholders and how its board treated its shareholders and so forth. So a lot of um, uh, these larger shareholders were really, you know, would welcome this idea of being able to kind of challenge ExxonMobil finally with the right message. And the message here, that's the second point I want to make, is that engine number one figured out a way to bridge that, uh, th those two strands of activist investing I mentioned, kind of financial activism and also the ESG, the sustainability aspect of it. They were able to show that uh, for ExxonMobil to adopt a much more, a much better approach to sustainability wouldn't only just be good for everybody and good for the world and so forth, but was also going to be good for ExxonMobil financially. They were able to connect it back to ExxonMobil share price in a very persuasive way that uh, allowed all these big shareholders to kind of agree that they weren't just merely voting for new directors because it was going to be good for everybody, but it was going to be good for ExxonMobil share price. Um, so those are kind of the two points, the collective action point and kind of the bridging between the financial and the ESG activism. It's, it's a really good example. I'm glad you brought that one up. Perfect. Thank you, Michael. So to kind of, kind of piggyback off of that, since, since we're on this topic of maybe even the rise in activist investing and the rise of collective action within the markets, would you say that there was any given specific event that jump-started this collective action or a series of events, what exactly started this movement and what trends are you seeing that add to the movement? Let's, uh, let's start with Christina here. The, I think the movement generally that we're seeing with, with individuals becoming more um, active in, in investing generally, to me, that's really GameStop. Um, I think that really put investing um, on the map for, for, you know, for the average individual, um, and the power that people have, um, I think that's, it was GameStop. Um, and then of course, AMC and, um, I think that's really what started everything. Um, but I think that at one point I wanted to, um, to pick up on and make sure that we make is a lot of individuals when they're investing and when they're you know, choosing where to invest their money, most many times they're investing in companies that they're consumers, that they are consuming the product or they're consuming a certain service or that they know of. Um, but I think that, that what we saw um, with ExxonMobil really highlights the ability of people or the need for people to invest in companies where, you know, they may not um, necessarily like what that company stands for, um, but they want to make a change um, in the company. And so I think that that's something that we all should be talking about, we all should be thinking about, and that investors should be thinking about as well. Um, but I think that the thing that really kicked everything off was 
was GameStop. And it was the fact that people, you know, were, of course, at home during the pandemic and um, uh, getting extra money from their their stimulus checks. And um, they were online a lot and, and they were on Reddit and they're, they're on Wall Street bets and, um, and that collective action and that community that they were forming. Um, I think that really kicked kick things off. I'm, although I'm interested to see um, what other people, what, what Felix and Michael um, think may have may kicked off the, this movement. For sure. Thank you, Christina. Michael, go ahead. Sure. Um, I, I, I'm going to go back a lot further. I'm going to go back to the mid-70s for one of the main motivations for this was um, some change in, as it turns out, um, not labor law, but how pensions are managed, the ERISA law and so forth. Um, that motivated large institutional shareholders to start to think harder or think, even think about voting in corporate elections. Before that, um, investors rarely, if ever, had any kind of voting participation in um, director elections. And ever since then, um, it, there's been a, a gradual with sometimes more and less action uh, increase in how um, mutual funds and pension funds and so forth have been uh, trying to influence companies by voting for directors. And that had its culmination, you know, a little more recently, as Christina mentioned, in, in some of the other uh, more current um, uh, shareholder elections and, and, and matters where shareholders get to vote. But I think, I think my point here is that what we're seeing here is, a, is not quite the culmination, but continuation of a trend that started some decades ago. It's not been a very longstanding tradition. Um, but now it's really starting to reach retail shareholders because retail shareholders are now, you know, much more easier, you know, they can own shares more easily than ever before. And, and there's, um, you know, uh, apps and, and services like Troop and so forth that are starting to try to make it easier than ever for them to vote their shares. But retail shareholders that want to do this are essentially picking up on what large institutions started to do for them, um, you know, some time ago. So, so, so this is not not that new a trend, um, but it's it's much more of a, of a continuation of something that uh, that uh, activists like me have been following for a long time. Really good point to make, I think, Michael. Thank you. And so before we move on to some closing statements here, I do want to ask you, Felix, just on this this topic of the rise in activism and collective action, how, how do you think from your perspective, Felix, that retail traders and investors as a whole play into this concept? And if you could, please give kind of a good overview on what Troop's doing to get more retail investors involved and kind of raising the awareness of the power that they have via voting their shares? Yeah, hundred percent. Um, I would say, um, an important concept to focus on in order to kind of make the most of this moment in time is this idea that the whole is often greater than the sum of the parts. Um, that when you look at what you can achieve collectively, in the context of an activist campaign, it is often a mix. And I know that this goes against the basic laws of physics and chemistry, um, but 
but the idea that you know coming together uh collectivizing bringing your shares together and kind of creating a front behind um an idea a group of demands etc often leads you into a place where you probably would have never really been able to to achieve some of the outcomes that you would um if you if you'd undergone this 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 action on your own not only because mathematically on your own it's really difficult to get to the kind of support that you need from a share perspective but also because like collectively your bargaining power is just so much greater um and so uh, introducing that concept is is kind of cool i think before even diving into uh you know, the conventional markets, there was a small kind of blip in the matrix from about two years ago, roughly around the time that GameStop and AMC was happening. Um, a bunch of people started getting involved in this thing called Constitution DAO, which was quite interesting because it was, as far as I remember, uh, the fastest collective fundraise uh, online. I think it was close to 41 or 41 and a half million dollars were scrounged together in under six days um, in the form mostly of cryptocurrencies with the objective to try and buy a copy of the U.S. Constitution. And it was a funny moment, but I think it also opened a lot of people's eyes to what can be done together. Um, and so Troop is all about continuing to get people face to face with that fact, that reality. Um, and we're trying to make it as fun and, and engaging as possible. It's uh, obviously difficult because not every topic necessarily lends itself to kind of light and breezy discussion. A lot of these topics tend to be rather serious. Um, but, the, but the platform itself encourages really anyone with a brokerage account and a couple ideas to, to please go ahead and submit your thoughts uh, for how you'd like to go and push a company on its uh, either its financial record or its environmental or societal record or both at the same time. We're here to help you structure your argument, find other people who are similar to you, who are also shareholders in that company. You will always remain anonymous, um, but your status as a shareholder will always be confirmed and verified, um, at least to be able to participate in conversations. And then we're happy to put together a toolkit from a regulatory and compliance standpoint that can help you put your argument in, you know, in the right format to be received by the company that you're targeting. Um, and all of this comes together uh, on our platform. Uh, it'll always be uh, free to use for our uh, retail shareholder community and um, as, as compelling and as easy to use as we can possibly make it. Um, but again, like it'll only get better if we hear from you and, um, and if we can do this together. Uh, so really encourage anyone who's listening to go to troop.com, create an account, poke around, take a look if, at any of the campaigns um, and let us know if there's something that's missing that you'd like to see. Always happy to get that feedback. Definitely do that, folks. And and I've been browsing around through Troop for a while now and just closely follows a lot of campaigns like the the controversial ETRN Mountain Valley Pipeline Plan. Uh, the horseshoe crab harvesting done by Johnson and Johnson, other more social and governance campaigns like the alleged union busting by Amazon and the use of child labor in multiple McDonald's locations. So I'd say Troop's just a really good place to go and see that collection of campaigns and just kind of see what shareholders are pushing for and activist investors are pushing for. So here at the tail end, I want to go through just each speaker one more time. Any closing thoughts that you may have and feel free, again, to plug anything you have coming out, any recent publications or those that are on the horizon. Uh, so we'll go ahead right now and start with Michael. Anything you wanted to add here at the end and anything you wanted to plug? <laughs> I'm, I'm pleased to try to raise the level of discourse and try to help retail shareholders 
um, you know, remain aware of what their rights are, uh, what some of the issues are, what they're being asked to, to vote on. Um, again, I'm, I'm trying to help, help uh, encourage, force companies to improve, to uh, be more responsive to shareholders in terms of how they make money, how they participate in our, in our communities here. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased to try to help, uh, help these listeners do that. So, uh, you know, one way for you to do that if, is, again, is, uh, you know, take a look at um, theactivistinvestor.com. You can sign up there, uh, give an email address, and I send out a weekly uh, newsletter on activist investing. Uh, comes out Fridays after the market closes, uh, has a bunch of useful links and so forth to uh, news items and opinion and analysis and even some academic uh, papers uh, each week uh, on activist investing. Love to have uh, have people uh, sign up for that. Uh, thanks. Thank you, Michael. Definitely sign up for that, folks. Michael's been spearheading these types of movements for quite a long time now. But uh, let's be honest, he doesn't look or act his age sometimes. Great to have you, Michael. Thank you. I love it. I'm, 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 I'll participate in any spaces you ever want to do. Just let me know, Nick. Absolutely, Michael. would love to have you again. Christina, do you have any closing thoughts, any recent publications or upcoming publications you'd like to speak about? Um, sure. So um, I think my one big thought that I want everybody to take away from this discussion is to understand that they have power um, and that um, Sergio and I like to refer to it as a superpower um, because although they may, may only have one vote per share, um, that is a voice and it's an important voice. And if you're not exercising your right to vote that you have with your share or shares that you own, um, then you're missing out on something. And so I know it's not the, the easiest thing to do. And, and when you get those emails to, uh, to vote, um, it's easy to just put it aside and forget to do it. And I know that I'm, I'm guilty of that as well. Um, but to really just take the time and to learn about the companies that you are investing in and um, to really exercise that right to vote because you do have, you do have power that you're sitting on. Um, let's see here. I think that we have all, well, all of my papers, all of our papers are available on SSRN. Um, we've written a number of different papers that I've talked about um, so far. I think one paper that we did, I did not talk about, I did not mention that is forthcoming which is also available on SSRN is a book chapter called um, Harnessing the Collective Power of Retail Investors. Um, and so that's right up the alley of what we've been talking about, um, about the great power that investors have um, and power that they have to leverage on corporations, which are in, um, corporations um, and, and their um, investors. Um, so that's one paper that's still forthcoming, although it is available. And another paper that we wrote um, that I did not mention or talk about um, is a paper called The Corporate Forum. Um, and in that paper, we talk about um, or advocate for corporations to adopt um, Reddit-style discussion board on they do 
communicate with uh, retail investors. This is a way of retail investors to be able to um, determine whether the information that they're getting is, is actually correct, um, a way of, of um, rectifying misinformation. Um, and we're working on, on other papers. And um, so stay tuned, follow me on Twitter. And, um, and I'm also happy if anyone has questions um, about the legal aspects of voting, I'm happy to, to always answer them. My, my DMs are open in Twitter. Thanks for having and, me. And thanks for coming. I think nobody better suited to answer those questions, Christina. Thank you. Thank you. And Felix, anything you wanted to touch on before we wrap up here and send folks into their afternoons? And once again, thank you to Troop for sponsoring this space and kind of bringing more awareness to the power shareholders can have. Well, thanks again for uh, for having us, and uh, it was a really cool opportunity to talk a little bit about this. Thanks also to uh, Christina and Michael for uh, your willingness to participate in the panel. the 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 parting word that I that I wanted to uh, uh, leave our listeners with today is that you know there are so many different uh, really cool financial technology and financial related. Uh, apps and platforms and services are uh, out there, a ton of which um, um, that we all use in the company every day. But I don't know that there are that many compelling examples of uh, what I think is referred to as multiplayer uh, fintech out there. And really multiplayer uh, fintech just means people doing things again, where what they can achieve is greater than what the sum is of what they bring to, you know, to, to this group. Um, and I think Troop is a, is a really compelling example of multiplayer FinTech, a platform that is by design purpose built uh, for collaboration, uh, collectively achieved outcomes and collective bargaining. And um, it's a, it's, it's obviously, you know, uh, an experiment, um, in addition to something that we hold high conviction over. And as I mentioned, it's a, it's a work in progress. Um, it's the reflection of everyone's feedback that they've brought to the platform. Um, so once again, like if you want to go to troop.com um, or to the app store or uh, Android store to download the troop app, that's also totally doable. Uh, really just curious to hear your thoughts on the platform and please don't hesitate to reach out, suggest any forms of activism that you would like to see. Um, and that's that. Thanks again. Beautiful. And thank you again, Felix. I, I'm a big fan of what you all at Troop are doing with with just empowering retail in general. We at Unusual Wales firmly believe in giving retail more access to to anything they need to make their voices heard. Now, everybody, this concludes our Exploring Activist Investing and Collective Action panel. For those of you that came in late and feel like you missed something, don't worry about it. I'll have this edited and cleaned up and beautifully sounding, pushed to our Unusual Whales, Apple Pod, and Spotify, as well as YouTube. Stay tuned for upcoming spaces. We've got two more this month. On the 20th, we'll be covering FOMC with macroeconomists per usual. And then on the 28th, we'll be having another congressional stock trading space featuring Rokana and more. So be on the lookout for that. And of course, follow all of our panelists from today, Professor Christina Souter. Michael Levin of The Activist Investor and Felix Tabry of Troop and Troop itself. Thanks again for sponsoring and bringing more awareness to this topic at Troop Now on Twitter. 
and have a great rest of your day, folks. Thanks for coming.